Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. What is something that you have learned recently that you were shocked to learn that you felt like you should have learned in school? Oh, that's a good question. One thing was that photos from the civil rights movement were purposefully shown in black and white, even though they were shot in color um, to make it seem like the events happened a very long time ago. That is something that was just like, oh, well, damn, look at that. Just trying to make us forget. <laughs> yeah. In textbooks that have color photos, mm-hmm. they're presented in black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was definitely a thing. That was like a shocker to me because I love history. And that was like, oh, I just feel like also I've been doing my own personal research on a lot of things lately. And so there's been some really sad realizations. I mean, I know I always knew as a country we were pretty... um you know, we weren't that beacon on the hill that we were purportedly for so many years. So yeah, it's just like dark, dismal history in the US. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about you? I never learned about the Buffalo Soldiers. Mm. Yeah, I would say that's also up there too. Something I never, Mm -hmm. ever learned about. Um, The narrative was always like, slavery, emancipation proclamation, freedom. Right. You know what I mean? And it's just like is not that yeah. inaccurate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. and then or I you know, was It's all glazed over, I feel oh, like. Oh, totally. Yeah. And then like the escaping to the north and then arriving in this sort of like world that like invites you to be the same and everything is perfect and suddenly False. everything's amazing. Right. And it's like no, that's no. not it either. No. That's like fantasy. Yeah. I, de- I definitely also feel like um, a lot of the work that we did on our pride mixes, I learned a lot about people that I didn't know about and about parts of the gay and lesbian liberation movement that I didn't know. And yeah. I also didn't know anything about Bayard Rustin. Mm-hmm. Um, that was someone that was just totally like, oh, you were so important to the civil rights so movement. So important. And you were taught. totally ignored because you were gay, basically. Yeah. Because you had to stay in the shadows 
for fear of upending the movement because of your sexuality. Right. And yeah. um, I learned not a lick of gay history in right. high school. Nothing. Right. At all. I'm trying to remember the first time I even... I don't, I really don't even remember the first time I I heard that Stonewall was the mm. place. Not right. that Stonewall is the place, as we talk right. about in the iconography of gay history. Yeah, I don't, I mean, not until college, I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah, I would say so, probably. But I'm hoping that this is a lot of waking up for a lot of people. Me too. Welcome to Summit 3, Histories. Let's talk about parks and their histories, both hidden and overt, both past and very much present. In this Summit episode, we'll explore each of the national parks we visited this season by way of their histories. What are some notable moments in the park's past? How was the land originally used and preserved by indigenous people? And what is in store for the parks now and in the future? So, Dusty, what's our first park that we're going to talk about? The first park we're going to talk about is Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, located on Big Island, Hawaii. The island of Hawaii was settled by Polynesian voyagers from the Marquesas Islands. While dates of arrival are up for debate, carbon dating places their arrival sometime between 1000 and 1200 AD. Along with crops to be planted and medicinal herbs, they also brought animals like pigs, dogs, and chickens with them in their double-hulled canoes, where they used celestial and solar navigation to get where they were going. Eventually, other Polynesians from a group of islands called the Society Islands, also located in the South Pacific, arrived and claimed rulership over the islands. While travel between Hawaii and the Society Islands was frequent for a time, eventually it ceased allowing the islands of Hawaii to develop their own culture for about 400 years before additional contact. A notable event in the history of Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, other than the fact that it and Haleakala National Park were once joined as Hawaii National Park, being split in two in 1960, was the internment of Japanese prisoners during World War II. On December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor was bombed by the Japanese, an act of aggression which essentially forced the hand of the United States into the war, and also began the process of the internment of Japanese Americans and Japanese nationals in camps, most on the West Coast, where populations of Japanese were much higher. From February of 1942 to March of 1946, 10 camps held 120,000 Japanese citizens. Obviously, this is an incredibly dark mark on the history of the United States. But at this point in history, where segregation is still rampant nationwide, it really is a drop in the bucket of racial inequality from the United States. The long and short of it is that while the attack on Pearl Harbor was a surprise, the FBI had been creating a detainment list for some time. The Kilauea military camp within the borders of Hawaii National Park essentially became home base for the detainment of the Japanese of the islands of Hawaii. And while most of the detainment camps started in 1942, this one was up and running in the afternoon of the strike on Pearl Harbor. The War Department essentially took charge of the operations on Hawaii. They were selective in who they detained and focused on businessmen, consular agents, Japanese language school teachers and principals, Buddhists and Shinto priests, and those who had Japanese military service, or who were deemed to have, quote, extreme nationalistic sentiments, end quote. 
and were therefore considered a danger to American security. This was also known as the custodial detention list. On the day Pearl Harbor was attacked, the War Department ordered that everyone on the custodial detention list be arrested. The FBI and Army intelligence immediately began to pick up those who had been identified. Altogether, 2,000 Japanese, Germans, and Italians were detained or interned at 17 locations throughout the islands. The next park we're going to talk about is Haleakala National Park, which is located on the island of Maui. While Haleakala and Hawaii Volcanoes National Parks are on two separate islands, Hawaiian culture flourished between these islands, as did communication, trade, and goods. The crater of Haleakala was an important site for the ancient Hawaiian people. This holy site is known to native Hawaiians as the House of the Sun. The sacred crater and summit are where ancient priests, or na kahuna po'o, had received spiritual wisdom and practiced meditation for over 1,000 years. Like many national parks and public lands, the CCC, or the Civilian Conservation Corps, had an incredible impact on America. Started as a federally funded work relief program designed to generate employment and income for young men during the Great Depression, the CCC was responsible for natural resource conservation across the country. In Haleakala specifically, the CCC worked to remove invasive plants and feral animals from the park. They also constructed several hiking trails within the park including the Sliding Sands Trail and the Halamau Trail. Whatever could not be brought onto the worksite at the park by members of the CCC was hauled by mules. This included not only supplies to build cabins and lay trail, but also food that was consumed by the members of the Corps. Our next park takes us all the way across the country to Virginia, and that park is Shenandoah. Various native tribes occupied the Shenandoah Valley prior to English settlers in the 1700s. These included the Iroquois, also called the Six Nations, and Shawnee Nations, as well as the Catawba and Cherokee Nations of the South and the Delaware and Susquehannock Nations of the North. It's apparent today that these tribes were matriarchal societies, and women had considerable power and influence in these tribes. These indigenous peoples had great respect for the land, and this was especially apparent as the land that was settled by the English was left largely unmarked by the native presence. While the valley had been occupied by indigenous people centuries prior to the English settlement, territorial conflicts between tribes developed and the Shenandoah Valley was essentially abandoned. The land was instead visited as an area to hunt and gather, as well as a space to source material, but not to settle in. The Shenandoah Valley was incredibly important to the Confederacy during the Civil War, not just because of the geography of the valley and the strategic walled nature, which was mirrored with the Appalachian Mountains on one side and the Blue Ridge Mountains on the other, but because of the fields of Virginia, which nourished the troops. The valley also provided opportunity for both the North and South easier access to each other's capital cities, and subsequently several valley campaigns were launched. In 1862, Stonewall Jackson used the strategic geography of the valley to threaten an invasion of the U.S. Capitol, helping to forestall a Union effort to capture Richmond. In the Gettysburg Campaign of 1863 and in the raid on Washington in 1864, Confederates again used the valley to undertake offensive operations in the North. However, the Union, slow to act on this strategic geography, 
did eventually strike back in several campaigns in 1864, which involved burnings of the valley, cutting off supplies to the Confederacy and its troops, the first of which happened in May of 1864 by General Franz Siegel and afterwards by General David Hunter. In the autumn of 1864, General Sheridan carried this further, following Ulysses S. Grant's mandate to make the land of the Shenandoah Valley desolate. Sheridan claimed to have slaughtered thousands of farm animals and burned thousands of barns. I remember learning about that in history class. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to have mimicked Sherman's march towards the sea. Right. 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 Which I also learned about right. in history's class. In Georgia. In history's class. In history's class. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. In Georgia. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Now we move on to Kings Canyon and Sequoia National Parks, which are literally next door to each other, located in California. The region of Kings Canyon and Sequoia National Parks were once home to the Western Mono, the Tubatulable, and to some extent the Yokut tribes. These tribes are cited as being non-agricultural seed gatherers. They specialized in using species of plants with Acorns and buckeyes were species that were used to create either a boiled mush or baked bread. They used every edible plant they could, dug for roots, and gathered berries. The people of what is now Sequoia and Kings Canyon were fairly omnivorous and would eat most animals and insects, with the exception of dogs and reptiles. Bows and arrows were used as well as spears for fishing and slings as toys. In most villages, there was a chief and lineage of this position was passed to the next male or female if there was no male heir. These tribes had many different customs, traditions, and a varied culture that included weaving, pit-fired pottery, and games. So a little bit of history that I found very interesting in doing this research was the impact of photography on the creation of Sequoia National Park. So Susan Thu and her photography are part of the reason that we have the park today. Thu was born to a wealthy Ohio family, and in 1918, she left for the West Coast with her father. It was here that she was first captivated by the giant sequoias. But that trip alone did not stop her love affair with these giant trees. She traveled to the High Sierras in 1923 and covered hundreds of miles of terrain and photographed all that she could. She believed that if people could see these spaces, then they would truly want to preserve them. To that end, she published a book titled The Proposed Roosevelt Sequoia National Park. This book included the photographs that she took on her expedition. Her efforts paid off as in 1926, the park was expanded to three times its size, the MPS sending her a telegram to thank her for all of the hard work that she put in. If this sounds familiar, it's because this type of advocacy work was used later by other photographers, including Ansel Adams, when it came to preserving national park spaces. This brings us to Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park, located in in Colorado. The canyon was a place known to the Ute Indians prior to the arrival of the Europeans. It is known that the Ute Indians lived on the rim of the canyon, but they went no further to establish community within the canyon itself. The Ute people are the oldest residents of the state of Colorado, and they inhabited the mountains and vast areas of land in Utah and Wyoming, as well as part of Nevada, New Mexico, and Arizona. The Ute were divided into a loose confederation of tribes called bands. The band that is most associated with the area of Black Canyon of the Gunnison is the Uncompahgre. 
smaller bands made it easier for camps to be broken up and for sites to be moved. This was especially important when it came to food gathering, as these native people recognized they needed to give the land time to replenish in regards to animals and plants. So they would alternate their sites. Before acquiring horses, they utilized basic tools and weapons, were adept at basket weaving and pottery and the tanning of hides. With the addition of horses to their communities in the late 1500s to the early 1600s, the Utes, already adept hunters, became expert game hunters, relying on buffalo as the source of so many things. For the most part, they lived in harmony with nature, understanding the reciprocal relationship with the earth. Many people are surprised to find out that Black Canyon of the Gunnison had a railway that passed through it. While the operation of both passenger and freight services stopped in the middle of the 20th century, the narrow gauge railway that ran 15 miles through the canyon was first surveyed in 1881 and completed in 1882 as a part of the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. The passage through Black Canyon was regarded as incredibly scenic, but was worrisome to conductors and passengers alike because of rock slides. Author Rudyard Kipling, who wrote The Jungle Book and who rode through the canyon in 1889, had this to say, quote, We entered a gorge remote from the sun where the rocks were 2,000 feet sheer and where rocks splintered river roared and howled 10 feet below the track, which seemed to have been built on the simple principle of dropping miscellaneous dirt into the river and pinning a few rails atop. There was a glory and a wonder and a mystery about the mad ride, which I felt keenly, until I had to offer prayers for the safety of the train, end quote. While the line operated for some time and even had several rail cities born from it, including the town of Cimarron, the line and these cities eventually dwindled into nothingness as both freight and passenger services ceased with the fall of mining activity and the advancement of truck transportation. Now we move on to Channel Islands National Park, which is located off the coast of Ventura, California. The indigenous people of the Channel Islands are the Chumash people. The Arlington Springs Man is the earliest example of a human remains in North or South America dating to 13,000 years ago, when the Channel Islands were still combined as one large island. That said, archaeological finds on San Miguel Island show that there was a continuous occupation on the islands from 8,000 to 11,000 years ago. These finds show the impressiveness of early peoples to not only create watercraft, but to navigate the coast with them. Traditionally, the Chumash people occupied an area that spanned from San Luis Obispo to Malibu, and which also included the Channel Islands. They were a maritime people that gathered resources from both the sea and the mainland. There have been 148 historic village sites that have been identified, including 11 on Santa Cruz Island, 8 on Santa Rosa, and 2 on San Miguel. Because Anacapa Island had no consistent source of water, it was likely occupied only seasonally. The remaining Channel Islands, Santa Barbara, San Nicolas, Santa Catalina, San Clemente Islands, as well as the area around Los Angeles, were occupied by the Tongva people, who were also known as the Gabrielino people. This culture was also a maritime culture. Many of the islands have a rich history of ranching and hunting, including elk and deer, some imported in from as far away as Rocky Mountain National Park. But it is a history of drilling for oil 
which some of the most apparent remnants of the island's history are laid bare. Once Santa Barbara and the area surrounding its coast were discovered as rich sources of oil at the end of the 1800s, oil companies sought to develop exploratory wells on the Channel Islands. Standard Oil developed a well in the high elevations of Santa Rosa Island in 1932, but was unsuccessful in finding oil. Signal Oil later developed wells on Santa Rosa as well in several locations, but were also unsuccessful. On Santa Cruz Island, a similar fate befell those looking for oil. While much of the work was concentrated on Santa Rosa Island by both Standard and Signal Oil, Standard and later Richfield Oil companies also worked on Santa Cruz Island. In 1955, operations by Richfield Oil began with their Wildcat rig, which was capable of drilling up to 10,000 feet if necessary. The rig was moved from Long Beach to the island. At the time of the drilling, no visitors were allowed on the island, but ranching operations were still underway. Despite the lack of success with the drilling and the eventual abandonment of some of the equipment still visible on the island to this day, the work that was done and the roads carved to make drilling possible have become important parts of the island and the park. And that now brings us to the final park of Season 2, Capitol Reef National Park. The Fremont people, named for the Fremont River, which flowed through Capitol Reef National Park, were ancestral Pueblo people who also made their home in areas of Idaho, Colorado, and Nevada. These people lived in the area from the years 300 to 1300, and evidence of their time in the park is recorded through various petroglyph panels in the park. They lived in pit houses, which were dug into the ground and covered by brush roofs. They were hunter-gatherers who also farmed squash, beans, and corn near the river bottoms. In their hunting, they used snares, nets, fish hooks, spears, and bows and arrows. Their archaeological remnants include baskets, pottery, and moccasins, all sourced from natural materials found in their surroundings, including the pelts of the animals they hunted. These people lived in bands which continuously moved on, merged, created new groups, and then began the process again which became known as residential cycling. The orchards of Capitol Reef have a history as old as the Mormon settlements within the park. Originally known as Junction, this first community got its start sometime after the first squatter to the area, Franklin Young, took up space. The first actual landowner within the park was Nels Johnson. The Fremont River was key to the survival of this small fledgling community, its farming and its impressive orchards. Junction's proximity to and position on the river also spared it from flooding that plagued many of the communities downriver. In 1902, the popularity of its orchards garnered Junction the title Eden of Wayne County, which is where Capitol Reef is located, and therefore its name was changed to Fruta. Along with their fruit orchards, the community was also known for its syrup and molasses, as well as its vegetables and alfalfa. Much of the community worked on a barter system, which saved the isolated community from much of the hardships of the Great Depression. While Fruta was mostly isolated, when Capitol Reef was declared a national monument in 1937, it wasn't long until visitors began to show up in droves. Eventually, much of the community disbanded, and any of the remaining homes were acquired by the MPS and eventually razed. And with that, let's end this summit with a queen and a game. Ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between, please welcome to the stage, Ancestry. You know, uh, she's a quilt queen. <laughs> she's a quilt. 
That's everything what she is. that she wears is quilted. She's the quilt queen. She mm. everything is quilted, but she mm. like you know it's elevated quilts. It doesn't just have to be <laughs> right. You know your this is not quilted northern standard. You know sort of <laughs> right that's fabric paper store print, right? quilt kind of thing. What's that? Quilted northern. Is that yeah, the it paper? is. Yeah. yeah okay. Mm-hmm. Who is not a sponsor, but. <laughs> We no. just gave them a plug. Yeah, we did. <laughs> so let's um, talk about my tushy bidet while we're at it. <laughs> let's talk about mine too. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's the quilt queen. I love the term quilt queen. I mean, she's the queen who does mm-hmm. quilts. She's the queen that does quilts. <laughs> she's I, got a square for everything. I do think that there is like a sort of old kind of um, Western feel to her. Mm. Like a, you know. Grandma Moses She doesn't necessarily Have to be an old woman Okay But I think she's An old soul Well you know What immediately Came to mind Mm. Was the um, The two Women who play The old women wrestlers On um, Glow Like that's who I can't picture them Right now (laughs) But I love that show And they like Transform into like Toxic Like they get Splashed with toxic That's their narrative Like toxic slime And they become like Younger Like hipper rock stars That's what I'm talking about about. Yeah 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 yeah, yes So I feel like She borrows from that Exactly Right And The beat down biddies I think is their name On the show Glow Mm -hmm. Ancestry Mm -hmm. Um, I believe she sings Tale as old as time (laughs) No I think she does Coat of many colors Okay By by Dolly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay I'll take Tale that. As old as Tale time. as old as time. The name of that song is Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> All right. Sorry. The first line of the song is Tale as old as time. Mm-hmm. Song. Have you... Okay. No lie. Have you heard... In the theater, there is this... There was this, like, legend story that went around for years. And nobody could identify who it was until finally somebody was like, Oh, no, I was there that night. There was a production of... Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. And the woman playing Mrs. Potts, she came out and it was the iconic, the title song. Mm-hmm. And she goes, Tale as old as time. Tale as old as time. Tale as old as time. <laughs> Tale as old as time. Beauty and the Beast. Right? Mm-hmm. It was like, she didn't just sing that phrase over and over and over again, but she did. So maybe Ancestry does that. Okay, maybe that's and then that goes into coat of many colors. And that goes into coat of many Great, colors. Great, I love it. I love it. Does she have a signature cocktail? I think she has. I think it's a you know, it's a si- signature quilt stash <laughs> instead. <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah. Or um, uh, well, I think she might sell sewing kits. Okay, that might be her merch. <laughs> and it's then her table merch. If she had a signature cocktail, I think it would you know. Not your grandmother's gin and tonic oh, or something okay. like that. I got gotcha. you. Kind of thing. I love it. Good for her. So, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between, please welcome to the stage Ancestry. And let's end the summit with a game. So, this episode, we were talking all about the history of the parks. And in the beginning, if you caught it, I mentioned that we talk about things that were currently happening in the parks. So, I figured it would be fun to play a game called Blind Item. Okay. So, in Blind Item, I'm going to give you a generic descriptor of an event and a park, and you need to name the park. Does that sound good? Great. Great. And it's a park from season two. And it's a park from season two. These are all parks we've been to. Great. And all in season two. It remains to be seen how the steamy national park is going to protect its airspace from overhead noise. 
Quiet Parks International, a worldwide organization similar to the International Dark Sky Society, is trying to lobby for this national park to become much quieter than it is, as its impressive sights are flown over by helicopters more than any site in the U.S. Hopefully, it won't all go down the tubes, as I would love some more peace and quiet from the tippy top all the way down to the sea. Well, is it Hawaii volcanoes? That's correct. Very good. Look There at we you. go. Great. Blind item for two. Better call Katrina and the waves because after a long closure and phased reopening, this park is again resuming these early morning services that have everyone in attendance singing this famous song by this one hit wonder band. Watch out for cyclists and protected birds on your way. What is Haleakala National Park? That is Bar? correct. These aren't like written in order that we went to them in, are they? No, I just realized that I did oh, that. Okay. And so now I'm going to skip around. Great. Great. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. The heat is on in this national park and with it, some fire damage. First reported at the end of May, this blaze has shuttered a large portion of one of the five units of this park. Reported by a construction crew on site, the blaze is said to have burned at least 1,400 acres of land. And when was this place? This May. Through June. Is it... I did not know about this until I did some research is today. Is it Shenandoah? Mm-mm. No. Is it Sequoia? Mm-mm. Black Canyon? I don't know. What is Channel Islands? Oh, I yeah. didn't know that On at Santa all. Santa Cruz Islands. What? Yeah. Not great. No. Like the whole Scorpion Anchorage area is shut down right now. Oh. Yeah. They're constructing a new pier there. Okay. And... Um, they're not, as far as what I read, is they're not really sure what the cause of the fire was, but it wasn't great. All right. Yeah, not great. Okay. This national park and other national park sites in this state, with the motto that's got some serious bad news for tyrants, account for about $1.1 billion in the $12 billion backlog of projects for the NPS. Hopefully, the Great American Outdoors Act can help with desperately needed glow-up operations to this space, which received a lot of attention during the Great Depression. What is Shenandoah? That's correct. And lastly, while bearing no resemblance to this famous Confederate general, this item in this national park should probably consider a name change. Perhaps an abolitionist, suffragette, or for God's sake, an indigenous person could be the new representation. Okay, is this Sequoia? Mm-hmm. And is it, are we talking about the General Lee tree? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's work on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, some other great news from Sequoia, which I know you'll be happy because oh. you're a birder. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not officially, but I know. I'm you're, probably... You lust for birds. <laughs> I'm going to end up becoming one eventually. Right. Um, apparently, California condors, which have been vacant from the park right. for 50 years were just spotted on Mora Rock. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because there's another park that was bringing them back, right? Right. We talked about that this season. Right. I think it was, was it Capitol Reef? I can't remember now. It was Zion. Zion is the one that hosts the California Condor Recovery Program. Oh. Or it's one of the hosts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess it started there. I think that was in our summit from last year, actually. It was, yes. Which I is why I that. just was thinking it was recently, because I yes. just recently listened to that. Right. So, yeah. Well, I'm very happy to hear that that bird has, you know, started to appear in more places, yeah. because literally they were down to less than 100 of them. Yeah. And last year in our 
summit, we talked about how like they had started to pop up. There was a nest and they started mm-hmm. to like on the top of Angel's Landing, right? Right. And they or somewhere near up there that you could see from there or something. Mm-hmm. And more and more are being born. And clearly they're finding their way into other places, too. Mm-hmm. It's a circle of life. It is the circle of life. And what a great example of like a program that can like, you know, mm-hmm. intentionally help bring back an endangered, a very endangered species. You know, that reminds me of a song. What song? Tale as old as time. And with that, everyone, thank you. <laughs> Tale as old as time. For tuning into time. this summit. Tale as old as time. This has been the Season 2 Summit by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast, and we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often, and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gaze at the National Parks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks mentioned on this show, visit our website, gaze at the National Parks.com. That's gaze, G A Z E. All original artwork featured on our website and on Instagram is by Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by Dustin Ballard. Stay tuned for our final summit episode about the hiking trails of our season two national parks. The most abundant seeds. A A corns. I almost said a corns. If this seems familiar, it's because this type of ad. If (laughs) Mike tries to say advocacy for three minutes, I know.